Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. QLPOR, as it's widely known, features a bevy of poets, spoken word artists, and live poetry readings with best-selling authors. Your host is Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Hello, everyone. My special guest for your quintessential listening poetry pleasure this evening is noted poet Mary Louise Kiernan. Her new book, The Gift of Glassophobia, is available now. Mary Louise, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, Dr. Ingram. (laughs) You're more than welcome. Let's begin this poetic journey. Mary Louise, what is poetry to you? Well, to me, poetry is an art form, and I use it to paint stories with words or sculpt them even because sometimes I make shape poems. And sometimes those poems can be just a little pencil sketch or kind of an abstract painting or watercolor uh, or even a photograph and Um, I just absolutely enjoy working with words on the page. It's not always easy for me. Yes. Um, I recently listened to Lucille Clifton's um, definition of what poetry is, and her Mm -hmm. definition is um, making sense of the world. Making sense of the world, which is so hard to do sometimes. Yes. Why do you believe that it's important that we as poets do what we do? Why Why is it important? You know, Dr. Ingram, I actually have a poem that I wrote Mm -hmm. that I believe uh, I speak for all poets, hopefully. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to read it to you. It was actually published in an online literary magazine called Enclave. Yes. And it is... So let me just say this, okay, so I consider myself a page poet, not necessarily a performance poet. All right. And I look very hard to on how a poem looks on the page. Okay. So this is six lines and it is uh in the style of Emily Dickinson. All right. And it's uh three couplets. Every poet's heart's desire. Every poet's heart's desire is each truth told that we aspire. Long we be so gladly dead with not one buried word unsaid. Pray not our thoughts wild remain, save ones found in the public domain. End. Right. Would you mind sharing that again? Please. I would love to. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Making me happy. All right. Before I read it again, I just yes. want to say that this is my own humble homage to uh, Emily Dickinson. All right. And All right. the words gladly dead come from Edna St. Vincent Millay's poem Renaissance. All right. And All right. I have the word, wild, the word wild in there, and that comes from Mary Oliver's poem The Summer Day. Right, so those nice are kind one. of, you know, some secret ingredients that I put in there. 
All right. Very nice. Every poet's heart's desire is each truth told that we aspire. Long we be so gladly dead with not one buried word unsaid. Pray not our thoughts wild remain, save ones found in the public domain. And wouldn't we all love to have our poems still in print in 50 years from now? Yes, we would. Mary Lou's, what do you think makes poets different from other people? Um, that's a good question. And it's the first time I've ever asked it. So <laughs> you yes. can say it if you want to. <laughs> yes. Um, are poets different from other people? Mm, that's a good one. I think... We think a lot more about life. Um, I know I'm a very slow thinker. I'm a slow writer. All right. And it takes me time to think, what do I really want to say? So I think um, poets take a little more time and are a little more introspective. Mm-hmm. Is that an answer? It sounds good to me. works for me (laughs) it works for me me. (laughs) all right then we'll keep moving along (laughs) your book the gift of glassophobia what inspires your book what inspires you to write the book well the title the gift of glossophobia Mm -hmm. so glossophobia the word glosso is greek for tongue phobia is fear Yes. So what inspired me, I should say, um, I would say it's the fear of public speaking. It's the fear of performance. And in my case, it's the fear of voicing my opinion. Mm-hmm. So little by little, I decided I need to just say what it is that I want to say. Okay. So that was basically the inspiration for my book. All right. That's the primary, the primary inspiration, to say what you want to say. Yes. You know, it's funny, and I want to apologize for saying the gift of glossophobia. I need my glasses. It's glossophobia. Glossophobia. I want to make sure I get that correct. That's important. That's important. So what more, tell me more about glossophobia. That's an interesting word. Well, originally I had written a first-person essay Mm -hmm. and tried to understand it myself and um, look at it from a medical point of view because it generally is not in a regular dictionary. It's usually in a medical dictionary as a medical affliction. Mm -hmm. So... um, I think that perhaps I should mention what's on the cover. All right. We're going to talk about the cover. Yes, I'd love to know. If that's okay. So the uh, cover is uh, my hands, and I am holding a photograph of myself as a little girl. And the photo is uh, was taken shortly before a dance recital, and the dance recital went all wrong. From that point on, I had no interest in being on stage ever. Mm. 
So for me to even be on this uh, podcast being interviewed with you, I yes. feel I've come a long, long way. Right. I actually have worked with uh, an acting coach, oh, and wow. the acting coach specialized in children. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, I said, consider me that seven-year-old girl. So we worked together, and what he said to me has really helped me. He said, when you're reading and sharing your work out loud, he said, it's not about you. He said, Mm -hmm. it's about your work. Always honor your work. I like that a lot. So for you to be here with me tonight really is a big deal. Uh, For me, it is. For many people, they're very comfortable doing this. Mm -hmm. There were years where I would not read my work out loud. And at this point in time, I enjoy reading it because Mm -hmm. I feel that I'm uh, connecting with an audience who uh, understands what it is that I'm saying. And I've always felt like I'm on the outside looking into the poetry world. And Mm -hmm. I feel part of it now. That is absolutely wonderful. And my heart is jumping right now. The fact that you would come on this show, share your work in the way that you share it, I think is so beautiful. So beautiful. Thank you, Dr. Yes, I'm with you 100%. We're going to make this thing happen. Do you mind? (laughs) Please, Please share a poem for us. Let's get started. Please share a poem. Well, I'd like to start with three haiku. Okay. And they are all fall, autumn themed. And because they are only 21 syllables, I will read each one twice and then move on to the next one. All right, then. These poems were also accepted for publication by the Asahi Haikuist Network, which is based Mm -hmm. in Japan. And I will put out a a shout-out to Don Krieger because when he heard me read these in a different Zoom, he said, why don't you submit them? And because of him and his generosity, they have been published. So the first one, Stark is summer's end. In one light switch moment, Leaves rustle, then rattle. Stark is summer's end. In one light switch moment, leaves rustle, then rattle. Fading trees whisper. Every lacy leaf I sweep, the closer we fall. Fading trees whisper. Every lacy leaf I sweep, the closer we fall. To grow wizened rings within their cores, dying leaves from each tree must fall. To grow wizened rings within their cores, dying leaves from each tree must fall. Thank you. First of all, you read exceptionally well. It comes across through the microphone. It sounds like you're an old pro at this. Maybe you are an old soul and been <laughs> sharing your work for a thousand years, but it's perfect. It really is. I, I, just that little bit. Thank you. 
Yes, yes, very much so. What I'd like you to do is you think about glossophobia, gifts of glossophobia. What are some of the predominant themes in the book? Well, I just want to go back to the reason why I now call it a gift. Okay, all right. Because I like if that. I had not been stricken mm-hmm. with glossophobia at such an early age, I probably would not have written down all these poems. So the themes that I have in my book, it's divided into three sections. Mm-hmm. And basically, uh, the first uh, section is about love and anti-love. The second section is about life in general. And the third section deals with the world beyond my life. So those are the three themes that are in the book. So you were stricken with glossophobia. It's just not a topic that you read about. You actually had it. Oh, I think I still have it. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> but don't tell anyone. I won't tell you. Right? <laughs> it's just you and I tonight. We're just... <laughs> Thank you. There's nobody... our secret. <laughs> That's right. Okay. <laughs> because if you didn't tell me, I wouldn't know. All right. <laughs> so in terms of writing the book, you delve into some deep, thoughtful topics Now, during the selection process, how did you decide which poems to use? What did you do? You know, when I decided, I should probably go back a little and tell you that in 2015, Mm -hmm. after I won the Poetry Prize, I saw an advertisement for the New York State Writers Institute. All right. And at that point, I applied and I was accepted. So it was a two-week program on the campus of Skidmore College. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I had enough poems for a chapbook, and I had a one-on-one consultation with Barry Goldenson, who had been the director of creative writing there, um, and I asked him, what do you think I should do? Where do I go from here? And he said, well, you could look for a publisher. Then he paused, and he said, or you could continue to write and work towards a full-length collection. So at that point in time, I thought I have to make a decision. Mm-hmm. Do I want to work on a chapbook? And then I decided I would go ahead and work as hard as I could towards a full-length collection. So at that point, what I did is I wrote down titles of poems that I wanted to write. Mm-hmm. So I can't say I had selected them already because I had not written them yet. All right. I, All right. Knew, I knew what it was that I wanted to write about. And I set myself a deadline and I completed it. And then I uh, handed off the manuscript to Molly Peacock. Mm-hmm. And Molly Peacock is just an amazing poet, biographer. She also was instrumental in organizing the Poetry in Motion program. That's okay. the... the um, uh, posters that would appear in the New York City subways. And uh, I took a sonnet workshop with her, shared some of my poems, and she went over my whole collection. And at the end, she said, we will find you a publisher. Hmm. So from that point on, I thought, okay, I have accomplished my goal, and we will see how this works out. 
Mm-hmm. And I am just more than thrilled to have this full-length collection completed. Yes. yes, I can understand. You know, one of my questions, or actually my next question to you will be, please share with me the titles of five of your poems in the book. Five random poems. Just, just choose them. Well, uh, I'm looking at my table of contents, and mm-hmm. in the love slash anti-love section. Here's five. La Seduzion, which is mm-hmm. a record of a very intimate conversation on a balcony in Italy. And I actually created the poem so that it's staggered, so it does look like a balcony. Wow. Uh, the next one is Perusian Pear, and that is a concrete or shaped poem, and it's actually in the shape of a pear. Next is Dawn, which is in Obad. And the next is the Antidote to Love. And is that one, two, three, four, five? And then there's one more, The Tending, which talks about what we need to keep love alive. Wow. Now, the question ordinarily is, what role should a title play in a poem. But since you title yours first, tell me about that. Are there just these words that come to you? You're like, I got to jot them down. And then you build the poem around that. I just, I'm fascinated. Please tell me. Well, the titles usually represent an experience that I've had, something mm-hmm. that I want to share and discover if anyone else feels the same way. Mm-hmm. And when I do write these poems, I, it's almost like a roadmap. I always know where I'm going. The question is, how am I going to get there? What words will I use? What format will I use? Um, and I was once in a writer's group, and I listened to this conversation about, um, are you a pantser or a plotter? Mm-hmm. And finally, I had to say, I don't understand what this conversation is about. So they I don't said, well, a pantser is someone who flies by the seat of their pants. Okay. And has no plan. All right. And a plotter is someone who outlines it and knows exactly where they're going. Okay. So I would be a plotter. Mm-hmm. And usually it's like, I think of it like a map, a destination. I kind of always know what my last line is going to be. So the title is kind of the subject matter and last line is my destination. And then it's the journey along the way like we're having tonight. Yes. I've never heard of that method before that you already know what your last line is going to be. Wow. That's exceptionally powerful. But what if you don't <laughs> what if you're in the wrong car? <laughs> in terms mm. of the, the body well, and you got this last line. <laughs> And then no one uses maps anymore. That's but true. a GPS can't write a poem for you. I've done a lot of workshopping and mm-hmm. I value other people's opinions. So if they're mm-hmm. telling me I'm on the wrong road, mm-hmm. I listen to them. And then I decide if I'm on the right road, the less travel road, the more travel road. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and then just go with my own gut. I like that. Please share a point. Yeah, so this is a poem that was featured in State University of New York, Orange County Community College's virtual gallery. And in the past, they always had it on campus and the poems were beautifully framed and paired with paintings. Mm-hmm. So in 2020, we had the pandemic, so it became a virtual gallery. The poem starts with a quote by Dr. Maya Angelou. When racist words are spoken, they don't disappear into the ether. And the design of this poem, which you cannot see, is that it is flush left and then it's on an angle. And it is intended to be read from the bottom up so that it ends up being, the end is up back up where Dr. Maya Angelou's quote is. All right. The title is Dear Reader, Begin with Brother, Brother, Brother. Brother, 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 and yes, sister, sister, sister. Ernie and Ron, harmonized words Carol wrote. I grew up in a house not hearing one, not one racial or ethnic slur. Mm -hmm. One story, our three times great-grandmother's name was Salomea, her name biblical. We could be Jewish. Can't say anything bad about nobody. The pastor says we don't have to like them, but we got to love them, whoever they are. No name-calling allowed by my parents. Sometimes mother would slip and say, that one is a nut. This one must be senile. But mothers, we mothers, fathers, we fathers can give relations four-letter words like care, hold, and love to raise our human race up. When racist words are spoken, they don't disappear into the ether. End. Wow. You know, I'm a native of North Carolina, and you would think with that being a southern state that during my childhood I would have potentially heard words, negative words, racist words all the time, but I didn't. I didn't hear my first racist word of being called the N-word until I was 26 years old visiting someone in Boston. Oh, my gosh. And Yes, it struck. I don't know why this is coming up right now, but I guess I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe, I just couldn't believe it that someone was saying that to me. Oh, I don't understand it. I don't either. I don't either. So as you think about being a poet, what do you view as being the role of a poet in modern day society? So... The role of a poet, I think a poet can be the canary in the coal mine. Okay. Can be there to sound an alert. Or a poet can just write about the canary. Or speak in the voice of a canary. 
So poets have a lot of different roles. Right. You know, one of the things that people talk about often is assisting the voiceless find their voice. How would we do that? It sounds like you're on that journey finding yours, and, and it's strong. I mean, it's fantastic. It's perfect. But how do we help someone find their voice? Do you know? Well, let me just reach over here for this poem. Okay. In the early 1990s, I took a workshop with Lucille Clifton. All right. And it was uh, at SUNY Orange County Community College. Mm -hmm. And the title of the workshop was Finding Our Voices. So I went home and I started to scribble notes. And as a result, I have a poem that I can read now. All right. So I borrow a quote by Robert Bresson. Make visible what without you might perhaps never have been seen. The title of the poem is written in steam. With a dull pencil from the medicine chest, I scribble sound bites for pretend listeners as the shower water whistles cold to hot. Is this my so-called spare time? Agatha Christie plotted murders while washing dishes, then sprinkled red herrings while soaking in her tub. When do I have time to take a bath? I sweat over the volunteer minutes. It is the dry writing that makes me thirsty. When do I get to be a good cause? Our laundry crushed, tumbled, unpressed, lazes on the sofa. It is the repetition, the refrain of do-over, the invisible work that drains me. Wash, fold, put away, wash, fold away, away until I ignore the toreless, the cracked tile walls, the invisible becomes visible, the visible becomes audible when I read my words aloud as the shower water whistles cold to hot. End. Wow. You know, there's so much synchronicity tonight when that line, the invisible becomes visible. Several years ago, I started this program for homeless and or unhoused individuals, and the title of the program was Finding the Visible in the Invisible. Oh, my so, gosh. Yes. <laughs> Mary Louise, we're on the same wavelength tonight. Now, tell oh me more about the purpose of that poem. Well, it's struggling to find my voice, struggling to find time to write, and after I heard Lucille Clifton, here's a woman, she was a teacher. She had six children. Wow. Um, and she still managed to write. And mm-hmm. I, I would think to myself, I think I have no time to do this. And it motivated me to start writing more often. So that was the purpose of this poem for me. Right, right. Now, because you've been on this journey and we're on a poetic journey tonight, and you're sharing, and I really appreciate it. Is a poem letting your guard down or building a wall? I think it can be both. Talk to me. And actually, the last poem in my book, mm-hmm. 
is laid out so that the it is no a poem is normally flush left. This is flush right, so it's actually creating a wall. Mm-hmm. And it, I purposely did it that way so that it would represent the struggle I was having. Yes. And this poem was actually composed at a workshop with Juan Felipe Herrera, who was our 21st Poet Laureate of the United States of America. Yes. And it was at the Sunken Garden Festival in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. So it was just an amazing workshop where he had us moving around the room. He had us drawing and... When we did our drawings, he said, no words are allowed. He said, just draw, 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 scribble, do whatever you want. And when we were done with that, he said, now I want you to write a poem about your drawing. So one of the things he said in the uh, workshop was, and I quote this at the beginning of the poem, you are going to pierce infinity. Juan Felipe Herrera. The title of the poem is The Translation. The translation of my drawing requires words to mark markings on bone, leather, cockle, parchment. Writing tight on folded paper recalls wherever scripts on feathery airmail letters. I have no language to explain the inexplicable. Concentrate, translate, relay, calculate, collate, contemplate, manipulate, devastate, mutilate. Our poet teachers schools. Question marks are loud. Sounds on the page, tapping of instruments, racket on wood, minds penning. But who will unfold the parchment to hear me? Wow. It was like listening to an audio book. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> Your voice is amazing. And I've listened to over 300 people. <laughs> and, and I'm going to share yes. that this was one of two poems that were selected to be translated into Italian. Yes. Do you have the other Startling. one? Do you have the other uh, one with the you? Flair- I'm sorry? Do you have the other one that you can share? I do. I'd love to hear it. Well, thank you for asking. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) And this came about because I was in a Zoom, an international Zoom. Mm -hmm. One of the the poets made a comment about my comment. And the next thing you know, he asks me if he could see some more of my work. And I had no idea who he was. And and it turns out he was, in his words, headhunting for poets that could be included in this second edition of the title is Corrente Incrociate, which means cross currents. Yes. And the graduate students at the University of Salerno translated them. So on the left side is in English, the right side is in Italian. Mm-hmm. So now there's a longer uh, introduction to the second poem. I did a virtual visit to Emily Dickinson's bedroom. (laughs) All right. (laughs) So I signed up for that, and I actually have been there in person, uh, pre-pandemic, obviously. 
And what they did is they showed us her desk and said she would look out the window and write her poetry. And the challenge was to write a poem looking out a window of your own home Mm -hmm. and sharing it with everyone else in the Zoom. So this was written January 29th, 2021, during pandemic times. And it was drafted, then read during a virtual visit to Emily Dickinson's bedroom. And it's titled, All and Any Slants. Two glass windows, my single glass door, uncurtained in winter. Welcome all and any slants of bonnie beams, solar or lunar. Come with me onto the porch, the lake not mine yet mine, to see, hear, inhale, whence breezes, brisk, soon balmy, shall wind around us. End poem. (laughs) Has a poem that you've written ever frightened or humbled you? Yes and yes. All right. (laughs) Well, you know where I'm going next. If you feel comfortable sharing, please do. But if you don't, it's okay. (laughs) Well, the one that humbled me is the one that I read in the beginning about um, every poet's heart's desire. I wrote it in a day. I I don't know how that happened. Mm -hmm. Usually I struggle. I work very, very hard. It takes me years to write something. So I would say... That humbled me, that experience. All right, all right. And then the one that terrified me is we, uh, when I did the sonnet with Molly, sonnet workshop with Molly Peacock, Mm -hmm. she challenged us and said, write the thing that you don't want to write about. (laughs) Mm. So I did, and I got home and I shredded it. So I cannot read it to you. <laughs> you but shredded it? It's so good it? to get out on paper. Yes. <laughs> oh, that is true. Well, I won't ask you to read that one. <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> it's paper mache now. All right. <laughs> well, I want to know before we take a quick break, does it hurt you to write poetry? If not, why not? Well, I do have a poem Yes, please. That answers that question. Would you like me to read it before or after the break? Okay, Okay, let's do it after the break. So let's do it after the break. All right. We'll be right back, everyone. Michael Anthony Ingram. I am here with the incredibly gifted speaker, 
Mary Louise Kernan. Her new collection, The Gift of Glossophobia. Here we go. <laughs> Glossophobia. <laughs> Mary Louise, I'll never get it right. I'll never get it right. <laughs> well, Dr. Ingram, you might have created a new word. Maybe there is a glassophobia. People really? who are afraid of glasses or Seriously? string glasses. <laughs> I need to put mine on. I really, I trust. Well, them. every I year new them. words are added to the dictionary. Oh, so you help me, and I'll help you. All right, we'll support each other. The gift of glassophobia, everyone. <laughs> I'll never forget it again. All right. Please share the poem. William Zinsner uh, was an editor. He wrote on writing well, and it's mm-hmm. considered the classic guide to writing nonfiction. Okay. And one of his lines from there, I wrote down and I kept forever. The quote is, I do not like to write. I like having written. The title of my poem is The Relief. So you may ask, when is my best time to write? So I say, when is the time best to pluck out one's thorns? For two or three hours, I hunch over, apply drawing salve, Dislodge barbs, extract shards, recreate splintered scenes, deeply embedded, tweeze thoughts word by word, slowly, slowly, until my eye sockets demand mercy. Mm. End poem. Please share with me an early experience where you learned that poetic language had power. Oh, I remember that. All right. Early, eighth grade, Sister Grace Maureen, <laughs> after teaching us over and over again how to do sentence structuring, introduced us to three poets. Uh, Emily Dickinson. Yes. Edna St. Vincent Millay and E.E. E. Cummings. Okay. The ones that she read and showed us from E.E. Cummings just absolutely shocked me because I thought, well, how can he get away from with breaking all the rules when we have to <laughs> sentence structure and make sure our grammar is perfect? So that was very enlightening to me. Um, Emily Dickinson, when I heard the first two lines of her eight-line poem, I'm nobody, who are you? Are you Mm -hmm. nobody too? Wow. That stuck with me all these years. And I thought, that's poetry. Oh, my gosh. It just was that early experience that really Mm -hmm. impacted me. And, And I thank Sister Grace Maureen. I've tried to find her again, but my understanding is that she did leave the convent and get married. Okay. Yes, I guess she was a true romantic at heart. And actually, a question to you is that all great writers have great writing influences. You mentioned Edna St. Vincent Millay. I've always loved her name. Tell me more about her. Is she an influence of yours or just someone you know peripherally? 
Well, there is a book about her life called The Savage Beauty. Okay. And she had a very interesting uh, poetic life and love life. And I really admire her poetry tremendously. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, the New York Public Library has her papers there. Okay. And I requested permission to look at her poems and her original papers. And the process is you apply and you need uh, at least two people to vouch for you. Mm-hmm. And they allow me to go in and sit down and look at her original poems and papers. And it was just a very moving experience. Mm. I feel like I know her. I've also been up to her house. Where does she live? Where is she? What is she uh, Australitz, New York. Okay, okay. And they had an apartment in Manhattan. And the apartment in Manhattan... I believe to this day is still known as the, the most narrow apartment in New York City. Why so? And I actually did a walking tour of poets' homes, <laughs> and the title right. of the walking tour was Get Lit. And All right. <laughs> it was also bar hopping. <laughs> okay. So, the group, it was uh, a fundraiser for, oh, the Village Historical Society, Mm-hmm. And we met, and we met at the um, uh, the horse's head. What I, I'm trying to remember um, where Dylan Thomas lived mm-hmm. above, and he was a regular there. I, I may have uh, said the wrong name. And we went around, and we got to see her home, E.E. E. Cummings' home, uh, O. Henry's home. It was just an amazing experience, and I think. My thought when I was younger is that these were not really real people. These poets, they were just, I guess, because I knew mostly dead poets at the time. And yes. uh, now I know a lot of living poets. And I learned from all of them. I learned from the ones that are gone and the ones that are here. And I, I learned from every poet that I hear. Wow. Now, do you come from a literary background, Mary Louise? I would say my parents were very literate. Okay. And to become, to have a literary back, I think every day I try to learn something new about literature. Okay. So I think it's, I don't know if I come from that background, but I I strive to learn more and to become uh, more knowledgeable about literary things as time goes on. Please share a poem. I have a poem that was published in the Evening Street Review. It's based on a trip that I went on. It was actually a bus trip. And the logo on the side of the bus said, Free Spirit Vacation. <laughs> But the poem, what I uh, try to do is to highlight the divisiveness mm. in the United States of America. I originally quote at the top here, 
from America the Beautiful, a poem by Catherine Lee Bates. America, America, God shed his grace on thee and crown thy good with brotherhood. Our shiny charter bus sways in Bryce Canyon's last light rays where hoodoo spires guard oot lands. We Americans unload single file with an old chap in a cap of bit gritty that claims his sun city is fun city. I like your hat, I declare. Where are you all from, he stares. New York, I flash a Broadway smile. <laughs> New York, he parrots, New York. No cause or pause, the bent man spews. Them New York Jews have strange ideas. Then with one thrust, the hunched man worms his fingers into my collarbone, snarls, now you get away from me. Mm. Hood sliding from my tinted auburn hair, I sputter, how do you know I'm not Jewish? How, he says, how? You got the wrong hair color. And crown thy good with brotherhood, God shed his grace on thee. America, America, end. Wow. I need a minute to kind of allow that one to settle in my system. It's extremely powerful. Tell me more about that piece. What led you to write it? It's just, wow. It took me a few years to put it on paper, but it was such a disturbing experience for me. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty friendly, and to find someone who I was just trying to be sociable and connect with somehow, yes, revealed himself and actually pushed me away from him. Actually pushed you? Literally pushed you? Yes, he did. Oh, no. Miracles. And it took me a long time to process this, and I was so angry that I finally just said, I need to write this down. Mm-hmm. So my free spirit vacation, freedom in America, I guess people can say what they want, but the um, just the vitriol and mm-hmm. a lot mm-hmm. of people think this way. Yes, so true. And it's, this is really what America's come to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Is it, always, maybe this is uh, based on my question about the role of a poet, is it our responsibility to write about those things that affect our daily lives, or can we just write about rocks? <laughs> well, in this poem, I wrote about hoodoo spires, and hoodoo is the, you know, formation of rocks in the canyon in Utah. Well, I did write about rocks, and I did write about an experience that happened to me that day. Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. All right. All right. You know, some people believe, not a lot, but that poetry is a dying art. What do you think about that? Oh, I don't know. Who are those people? 
Or I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like saying God is dead. Poetry is dead. You know, I don't know. <laughs> I think uh, there's so much performance poet- poetry now, slam poetry, um, uh, so many venues for performing in public. And a lot of, especially with the internet, there are so many more um, venues with being able to submit online. So I don't think it's a dying art. Um, Yeah. Now, your book. Now, are you hoping that your book resonates with a broad range of readers, or are you targeting a specific audience? Well, as far as an audience goes, many of my poems are family stories. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that it will be passed down in generations. I have uh, a poem about my great uncle who was involved uh, with the IRA, Mm -hmm. and now it's all public knowledge. Mm -hmm. It's all online. It's no longer a family secret. I write about my grandfather and his voice uh, as an immigrant coming here to the United States. So that's kind of a topical subject. Uh, How do we treat immigrants and the way he was treated? Uh, So, you know, whoever reads it, I hope that they just can uh, understand, connect, possibly identify and that's really my goal. I like to connect one-on-one, for example, the conversation we're having now. Yes. Uh, so it's important to me that I have some kind of connection, and the feedback that I've been getting from individual people has just been life-affirming. Mm, very nice. You know, some poets claim that a poem is like a living creature. Once it's out there, there's not much you can do to correct or improve it, but others edit meticulously, not leaving much from the original draft form. What is your take on the editing process? Oh, I do a lot of, I don't know if it's editing so much, but compressing. I don't want to use any unnecessary words. Okay. Um, I try to research a topic and use words to create images mm-hmm. um, yes I'm looking at a poem here now and I did a lot of research on fire basically all right so at some point I might be able to read this one. Oh, you can read it now if you like yeah I'd love to hear it all right um, this is actually a, sort of a timely one because it has to do with New Year's and I don't know, have you ever heard of a burning bowl ceremony? No, I haven't, no. So in some congregations, they have a glass bowl, and what you do, the congregants put in um, something that they want to release. And like now, is this, a, is this a church congregation or just in general? It's a church congregation, but I think, you know, non, non-congregations, you know, may do it. For whatever reason, but this particular one happened at uh, a congregation. 
All right. So it begins, I do borrow a quote, and the title of this poem is called Burning Bowl Ceremony. Remember the entrance door to the sanctuary is inside you, roomy. In a place of new thought, on an elevated table, a blown glass bowl awaits my ashes of anguish. Congregants pen the burning matter each desires to release by setting virtual bonfires of lightness. I, too, long to douse lofts, snuff disbelief. Have I the willingness to experiment? Can I repair despair with good intention, calculated chemistry, or simple science? Is a wish the same as a prayer? Each torched square of flash paper combusts midair with a whoosh, all except mine. The browning edge of dried parchment resists ignition. Unable to bear the intensity any longer, I drop the still flaming matchstick. My inked words sink then smolder into carbon curls of crackling black. When a new thought arises, sparking a refrain on which I meditate. To extinguish, I must relinquish. End poem. Wow. You know, accessibility is something that people talk about a lot. How hard do you think someone should work to solve a poem? Um, you know, when I write a poem, I feel like I do it on several levels. One mm-hmm. is the story, the narration. Uh, sometimes there are words that or used that the reader might not understand, and then they have to stop and then look up the word if they're really interested and then go back. Um, and sometimes the structure can be a little off-putting, yes. not particularly with mine. Mm-hmm. So some are a little harder, and it depends. You know, that's why some people like limericks, uh, some poems can be one sentence. Some poems can be a book length. Mm-hmm. Um, so it can be a challenge, but at the same time, it can be as simple as I'm nobody, who are you? Mm. You know, I shared earlier that I felt that you were an old soul. Now, if you were a poet, <laughs> <laughs> if you were a poet doing a different era, when, where would you want it to exist? I think in the future. Oh, wow. Tell me about it. <laughs> I've never heard anybody say that one. <laughs> well, because I'm a late bloomer and it's mm-hmm. taken me so long to be able to say, I'm going to say what I want to say. Yes. Um, in Cultivating Lives Poetry, I read a poem that I wrote about the ex-pope which everyone seems to have forgotten about. Yes. And 
when I tell the backstory, some people don't like that. They don't want to hear about it because it has to do with uh, abuse of children. Yes. So um, I'm trying to remember exactly what you asked me. (laughs) Well, that if you were born in a different era or a poet in a different era, you said the future. So the fact that I've been a late bloomer and I've finally been able to say what I want to say mm-hmm. and not think of someone's reaction, mm-hmm. I would like to come back in the future and start mm-hmm. at a much younger age. I understand. I understand. When uh, I was up at the New York State Writers Institute, I was mm-hmm. in a class with all young MFA students in their 20s. Okay. One of the young ladies had a laurel wreath tattooed on her body. She knew from the age of 18, 19, 20 that she was a poet. Mm. And it was only when I was up there that I took a workshop. It was two weeks with uh, Peg Boyers. And we had one-on-one conversations. And she called me into her office, and while I was in the waiting room, I looked up and I saw there was a photo of Peg Boyers with the arm of Seamus Heaney around her. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm in a completely different world here. Mm-hmm. And when I came in, she said to me, she said, I just have one thing to say to you. She said four words. She said, you are a poet. <laughs> <laughs> and from that point on, I called mm-hmm. myself a poet. Oh, all right. But of course, you know, I'm very grown up into my third act now. So, right. <laughs> so I would like to come back in the future and, and have that in my first act. Okay, very nice. You know, we've reached a part of the program that for me is my first personal favorite. I call it a mini poetry concert. And this is where you have an opportunity to share two or three poems, back-to-back, uninterrupted, no questions from me. Mary Louise, you're on stage. Oh, goodness. I think I'm going to read short poems, if that's okay. Oh, no problem. I'm just going to randomly flip through here. I think I will read to you Perusian Pear. And I wrote it after receiving a Perusian pear, a marble one, as a gift. Perusian pear. To call it simply a droop, the botanical label bestowed upon stone fruits, is to know neither the vision of its triple layers of skin, stone, and flesh, nor the hidden kernel at the center of this alabaster pear, graced by one verdigree leaf, with polished streaks its loving sculptor would refer to as stains of berry blue, nor as an object of art presented sweetly by its object of affection. I'll also read the poem that I received the prize from 
uh, Tempe Library when they partnered with Arizona State University. Mm-hmm. That was in 2015. No dwelling. My high on the hill home must be multiply listed with no time to rue. I resolve myself like the persistent sparrow mourning its egg-filled nest knocked from above the front door cornice. Bewildered, the bird shuddered midair, its wings backpedaling furiously in place. How fast can a bird's heart beat before bursting? Quelling my own palpitations, I will mirror the ways of the winged one that rebuilt its nest, flight after flight after flight after flight, meshing leaves and twigs with mossy mud, then weaving in a single strand of my child's hair, loosened during a porch-side hairbrushing. How fast can my own heart beat before soaring? And uh, random. (laughs) Okay, here's one. Turning 40. Turning 40 on a full moon. Let the lunacy end upon. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I looked out the window and I turned 40. I said, it's a full moon. What the heck happened to my life? I didn't have time to take a breath. (laughs) I didn't have time to drink a sip of water. (laughs) We've almost reached the end of our journey, and I want to know, do you think you were meant to be a poet? If you think you were meant to be a poet. I think being meant to be something is, it sounds like it's fate, but I work so hard at what I do mm-hmm. that I feel as if I've worked for it. All right. And it just was not necessarily my destiny. Mm-hmm. When I grew up, we always had Reader's Digest in the house. I remember that. And I remember reading this one quotable quote Mm -hmm. and it said that luck is the residue of hard work Mm -hmm. and people might say oh you're so lucky but it's hard work and Mm -hmm. writing for me is very very hard and I take it seriously so but I am a poet Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I'm grateful all right all right I like hearing that well let me ask this question What surprises you most about being a poet? For me personally, I am just so surprised in a good way and in awe Mm -hmm. of how wonderful the other poets that I've met have been in welcoming and they're so generous and that I finally don't feel like I'm on the outside looking in anymore. Mm -hmm. It's just Yes, it's a happy surprise. Well, I want to thank you for joining me tonight. But I've had to ask, what did you learn about yourself tonight? 
Oh, that I can pretend that I'm not nervous. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> Three well, things, I, Mary Louise. Three things. That's one. <laughs> what else did you learn about yourself tonight? Oh, gosh. Well, I'm a slow thinker, so we could be sitting here for a long time before I come up with an answer. <laughs> All right, then. You're Would I be able to read one more? Yes. Well, <laughs> synchronicity, I usually ask people to read one last one, but I said Mary Lou is probably ready to go. So I'm not going to ask her to read anything else. But if you'd like to, I'd love it. It's a great way to end. Well, what I would like to read is one haiku that I wrote for the host of Quintessential Listening. Well, who is that? <laughs> Me? Dr. Michael Anthony oh, Mary Louise Kernan. <laughs> well, I stole one line from you. You did? <laughs> so I don't know if it's plagiarizing or if it's a compliment. It's a compliment. So uh, I, I'll i read it twice because it All is right. only 21 syllables. Okay. And it's not titled as most haikus or not. Troubadours chime in when Sir Ingram sounds bells that let poetry ring. Troubadours chime in when Sir Ingram sounds bells that let poetry ring. Oh, Mary Louise. <laughs> That's the highlight of my holiday season. <laughs> <laughs> It, it doesn't take I, much to make me happy. It does not take much. We'll have to ring some bells. <laughs> yes, you will. Can I say something? Can I say something? Yes. I am so proud of you. I really am. I really am. I am so proud of you, Mary Louise. Because your voice is so strong and so eloquent. You speak with such diction. Your diction is perfect. I mean, I'm ready for the audible book. I really am. <laughs> Me too. All right, all right. Well, I want to buy that first copy, my friend. I want to buy that first copy and say I knew her win. <laughs> well, if it ever happens, it will be on my website, and right, my website right. is MaryLouiseKiernan.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, if anyone's interested in getting the book, and there's also links to uh, my Instagram account and uh, Facebook. I think Facebook's mentioned on there, yes, but yes. I also have recordings that I did of poems. Oh, wow. So people can click on my recordings and hear me again. If mm. it's not too painful. <laughs> well, I thought that you hadn't recorded anything, Mary Louise. Yeah. On the poem that was published in the Metropolitan Diary of the New York Times, Okay. Is there? Okay. So if anyone would like to hear, it's dedicated to my dad. All right then. And uh, a few other poems. Okay, very nice. You know, I think I kept saying glassophobia for a reason, because a glass can be broken. Oh, glass. And I feel like you are breaking the glass around yourself, the containment around yourself in terms of your writing, your way of being. And maybe I just kept saying that because I was supposed to say it. That's so beautifully put. Thank you. 
Yeah, you're more than welcome. And well, right. listeners might not realize, you know, what an amazing poet you are. And your last poem that you read at uh, the Wild Card Open Mic for mm-hmm. Cultivating Voices. And the title was, wait, wait, let me check before I misspeak. All right. When I Dream of Paris. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> you oh, like that? I, I hope you get to go there one day. I do, too. And, you know, the thing is, when I wrote that piece 22 years ago, I said it to the music of Club Debussy's Prelude to the Afternoon of a Fawn. You talk about, in my mind, the marriage of poetry and classical music. I'll, I'll send it to you if I can find a clip of it. Um, oh, I would love to hear it. <laughs> well, all right, I then. think you should have one episode where someone interviews you. Synchronicity again. Somebody <laughs> wants to do it. <laughs> Somebody wants to do it. <laughs> they really do. Has anyone really interviewed you on quintessential listening? No, no one ever has. <laughs> no one ever has. <laughs> I don't like answering questions. <laughs> Turnabout is fair play. <laughs> it is. <laughs> well, I want to thank you. I want to. I am so glad that I reached out to you to invite you. I'm so glad that you accepted my invitation. This has just been wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Ingram. Uh, Michael, please. Michael. All right. All right. (laughs) All right. All right. Well, all right. Michael Anthony, remember. Michael Anthony. All right. (laughs) All right, good people. We've reached the end, the end of another poetic journey. And I want to thank you so much. I want to thank Mary Louise Kernan, her book, The Gift of Glossophobia. Is available now. Pick it up. Buy it. Buy me in copies. All right. And like I share with you every single week, let poetry ring somewhere throughout the land. Good night, Mary Louise. Good night, everybody. Good night. All right. Thank you. Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also check out the website at qlpor.com.